And the rest of you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I noticed something in my study this week, and actually, it's in the context in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. So I want to go back and read that little section there. Matthew 4, 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, And from beyond the Jordan, seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So picture the scene. Jesus has now ascended to the mountain, and his disciples have come closer, are probably sitting nearest to him, but these crowds, filled with people who heard him teach in the synagogues, which likely means the religious, the Pharisees the Jews. And included in that crowd are who? The afflicted, the diseased, the outcasts. And then Jesus preaches his sermon. The Sermon on the Mount was not preached in a vacuum, but Jesus preached a sermon in front of actual people, people that he looked at, an audience that he saw. With that in mind, who do you think Jesus was likely looking at or pointing to when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. You think he was pointing at the Pharisees and the religious? Or do you think the Lord Jesus was looking at physical illustrations of poverty, of affliction, and of weakness? pointing maybe to those people and showing that the right attitude, the right heart that you need to enter His kingdom looks kind of like this. These people who are considered outcasts, who are considered the rejects of society. Jesus says your heart must manifest what you see as physical illustrations right in front of you. You must be poor in spirit to enter my kingdom. You must mourn to be comforted. The purity you're looking for, religious elite, is not in your clean hands and your clean outer appearance. It's not from segregating yourself from these poor and afflicted people. You need to be pure in heart to see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for food and water, but for righteousness, and they'll be satisfied. Just an interesting perspective when you consider the Sermon of the Mount in its context. Jesus is looking out, again, physical illustrations of what Christians should manifest in their hearts. Jesus gives eight Beatitudes. Eight Beatitudes. They're eight really heart characteristics that manifest themselves in the life of a kingdom citizen now as they await a future promise, a future reward. We covered four of them last week and we'll cover four more today. Let me just remind you of where we've been. The first beatitude, blessed are the humble. Jesus said, blessed are the spiritual beggars, essentially. Those that recognize they've got nothing to offer. They utterly depend on mercy These are the ones who enter the kingdom. Point number two, blessed are the sober. Blessed are those who mourn. Not 
their external circumstances uh, are not the, uh, necessarily the consequences or the guilt or the shame of sin, but the sin itself. Those who mourn over their sin, and they will find comfort in forgiveness and will be comforted when sin is no more. Point number three, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who place the will, the need, and the good of others before themselves. They, they have great power under control. They're not out for their rights. They're not out for their own fame or their own glory. But they lay all of that aside. And those are the ones who inherit the earth more than what they gave up in this life. Point number four, blessed are the righteousness craving. Blessed are those that have tasted righteousness and desperately crave more of it. They'll be satisfied when the righteous king establishes his kingdom and upholds it with perfect justice. Four more beatitudes, four more characteristics of the blessed, God's blessed. Not the world's blessed, God's blessed. Point number five, or the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. It says in verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Here's a definition of mercy. Mercy is moving to relieve someone else's pain. Mercy is moving to relieve someone else's pain. Think about what Jesus has been doing. What has drawn the crowds? He's been performing acts of mercy on these people who are afflicted with disease, who are carrying burdens, who are even possessed by demons. To relieve them from that pain is an act of mercy. That's what mercy is. Mercy is moving to relieve someone else's affliction. Now, the emotional aspect of it is pity or compassion, right? Pity or compassion on those who are less fortunate than yourself. But there is a volitional aspect of it is to do something. You don't just look upon someone with pity and compassion, but you move. You act to relieve their affliction. That can manifest itself in a variety of ways. It could be forgiving a debt that they owe. It could be carrying someone else's burden. Or it could be providing a remedy a solution to their affliction. Doctors, physicians, those in the health world, the practices, they're they're servants of mercy. That's what they do all day, every day. Is that they're providing remedies for diseases, pains, afflictions. That was the Good Samaritan, right? In the Bible, the Good Samaritan was a servant of mercy. He literally, he cared for this other person who was afflicted, beaten, oppressed. Mercy could manifest itself as providing uh, shelter, food, water, clothing. Homeless ministry is a ministry of mercy. Also, mercy could manifest itself in defending the rights of the afflicted, the helpless, namely the unborn. Pro-life ministries are mercy ministries. Mercy can manifest itself in a variety of ways that should be manifest in our life, in the life of a Christian, but the greatest manifestation of mercy is forgiveness. Because, get this, The greatest affliction in life is sin. The greatest manifestation of mercy is forgiveness, removing a debt caused by sin, because the greatest affliction in life is sin. You and I both know sin has caused the greatest pain in your life. Sin and its consequences, which includes death. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable about mercy. Matthew 18, verse 21. 
Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Jesus isn't putting the maximum at 77 necessarily either. What he's doing is he's speaking in hyperbolic language. He's exaggerating to say that forgiveness should be offered beyond your reason. Beyond what you think is the reasonable expectation. Oh, it's reasonable to forgive somebody seven times. Jesus says, move that higher. It's more reasonable to forgive him 77 times. Or even higher, in fact, than that. Why can he say that? How can he say that? Well, he tells this parable. Look at verse 23. It says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants or his slaves. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me help you do the math. A talent is 20 years worth of wages. That's a lot of money. And so I did some math. You know, the average working years or the average working span for men at this time was probably realistically closer to 60 years. Men worked their whole lives in biblical times. So 60 years of wages. 10,000 talents is then the equivalent of 3,333 lifetimes of work. Transferred to today, you know, taking the average amount that a man makes or earns in his lifetime to today's numbers, that is north of $10 billion. North of $10 billion is what this servant owed the king. In other words, that's an impossible debt. You're working multiple lifetimes to pay that off. I don't care if you are the assistant to Jeff Bezos. That's a lot of money. So Jesus, again, exaggerates this number to show you that this was an impossible debt. And look, he even says in verse 25, since he could not pay, he couldn't pay it, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And look at verse 27, out of what? Pity, compassion, mercy. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. $10 billion, done. You don't owe me that money anymore. Totally cleaned the slate. That's amazing. That's amazing mercy. That's an amazing act of forgiveness. All that money, he just said, no more. You don't owe it to me. You're forgiven. The debt is canceled. Now look at verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii or a denarius was a day's wage. Okay, so about a hundred days of work, a couple months worth of work. In today's dollars, maybe this is about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars that he owes this man. That's a lot of money, but that's not an unreasonable debt. You work hard for a couple of months and you save well, you could pay that off. Some of you may have that kind of debt in credit cards or in a school loan, even more so. Reasonable, right? Fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. And look at what he does to this servant. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Deja vu. He should be looking at this guy going, oh my gosh, I was just here. But he doesn't. 
he refused, verse 30, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master, the king, all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, billions of dollars, because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. And in anger, the master, the king, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's the point. God shows incomparable mercy by forgiving an impossible debt of sin. A debt that you could not pay. He forgave it. Through His death and sacrifice on the cross. That came to Him at such a cost. Therefore, mercy is a reasonable expectation from you. Christian, because any debt that anybody owes you does not compare does not even compare, doesn't come close to the debt that you owed God and He forgave you. You see the logic? God's mercy, His forgiveness is unreasonable. Therefore, any debt owed you is is reasonable to forgive. We can and we should move to forgive any sin committed against us. We can and we should move to carry any burden. We should... We can and we should move to relieve any affliction from someone else because God has already done the heavy lifting in our life. He's forgiven all our sin. He's carried all our burdens to the cross. He relieved us of our greatest affliction in His sacrifice on the cross. And so we ought to have mercy on others in the same way. Important point point of clarification. Sometimes people mix up the order here. Showing mercy is not the means of forgiveness. Showing mercy to others is not the means to forgiveness. Forgiveness is the means to mercy. There's an important order and logic even in this parable. The king forgave the servant first and then expected him to forgive his servant next, right? Now, this is where the social justice movement gets it wrong and backwards. The social justice movement demands mercy as a way to get forgiveness. You must do this act of mercy in order to be justified, forgiven by God. No, no, no. It's the other way around. God says, because you've been forgiven by God. Because you've been made right with God, then go out and show mercy. It is a fruit of salvation, not the means to salvation. Make no mistake, though, that doesn't let us off the hook. There will be mercy on your fruit tree. God will find it somewhere. Because it's only the merciful who receive mercy on the last day. There's a strong exhortation and encouragement here for you, Christian, that you ought to be showing mercy in your life because God has shown you so much mercy in His forgiveness of you. Do you know what separates the sheep from the goats on Judgment Day? Mercy. Did you, Jesus, do this to the least of these? The sheep, yes. The goats, no. The goats go to eternal punishment. The sheep enter into eternal life. James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. The same principle is true here in our beatitude. It's only the merciful that shall receive mercy in the end. And I want that to sink in for you. When you consider standing before the king on judgment day, consider this. He'll not give you a theology exam. 
He's not going to tally your church attendance. He's not going to be counting up your tithes and your offerings. He's going to be looking for mercy as a manifestation of the mercy that He's shown you. And if, is, if there is no mercy, He's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And you obviously did not know my mercy. Because you're not acting like it. Are you merciful? Will you move to relieve the affliction of others? Not to earn God's favor, but as an expression of gratitude and thankfulness for what He's done for you. It's reasonable to expect that from you, Christian. We ought to be the most merciful in our daily interactions with other people. We ought to forgive quickly, not hold a grudge. We ought to be that one who provides care for that person who's afflicted that we come across our paths to provide that genuine care, ultimately to share the gospel with them because their greatest need is not the physical remedy, but it's the remedy to the heart that is God's love for them and dying on the cross for their sins, bearing and taking care of the greatest affliction in their life. That should motivate us and move us to show mercy to others. Number six. Blessed are the pure in heart. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a picture. Do you wish to see God? Let me ask that first. Do you wish to see God? Do you want to see Him face to face? To behold His glory? well, then you ought to pursue purity from the heart. The word for pure could also be translated clean. Clean. Clean in heart. Now, Jesus' audience, like I said, was made up of religious people too. They were obsessed with clean. They were the Mr. and Mrs. Clean of this day. They had dietary laws that kept them from unclean food. They had segregation laws that kept them from unclean people. They had these ceremonial washings over and over and over again that kept them from offering unclean sacrifices. Obsessed with clean. They had an appearance of cleanliness, an outward purity. But Jesus says the blessed are pure in heart. These are the people that see God. You know, this is should remind especially the Jewish listener of the psalm. Psalm 24. Listen to Psalm 24. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In other words, the kingdom is God's. And then look at what he says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place. Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only those with a pure heart will see God and enjoy His presence in His kingdom. You know, after David, the great king of Israel, he, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he cried out to God uh, in a prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Now remember, this man commit adultery with another woman who wasn't his wife. This man, David, killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He's guilty of not only adultery, but of murder. And he doesn't come to God and say, God, clean my eyes, for I've looked upon a woman with lust. He doesn't come to God and say, God, clean my hands, for I've murdered a man. And his blood is on my hands. He says, God, in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. David knew that he needed to be washed, not on the outside, but on the inside of his sin. And so do we. Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, in Matthew 23, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. It starts with the heart. 
Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside they appear beautiful. Maybe they have flowers up against the tombstone. Maybe it's a beautiful meadow covered in grass. Maybe it's a beautiful piece of marble or granite with a great inscription on it. But you know what's on the inside? Dead men's bones. In all kinds of uncleanliness. So, Jesus says, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Listen carefully. You can wash your hands until they bleed from dryness. You can social distance for the rest of your life and separate yourself from all kinds of diseases. You can take up the life of a monk and live in a monastery, and and remove yourself from all the ungodliness of this world, but you still have a problem. You know what it is? You have an unclean heart. Unless your heart is clean, you will not see God. Maybe you've come this Sunday morning, and your life looks like it's all together. You have a clean shirt on, no stains on your pants. It's probably because you don't have young kids. But you act like everything's okay. It looks okay on the outside. Maybe somebody asks how you're doing and you point to your religious works and you say, oh, I've been good. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. Oh, I've been showing up to church. I'm doing good. But on the inside, you know there are dead men's bones. There's sin that has not been dealt with, has not been confessed. It's being harbored in your heart. So you come and ask the question, how do I get a pure heart? How do I get a clean heart? Listen, you need to be washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life you could not live. His actions weren't only righteous. His motives were righteous and clean and pure. And it is only trusting in Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His perfect sacrifice on the cross, and then the resurrection that can save you and wash you from your sins. Cry out to Him today. Cry out to Him just like David did in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Jesus answers that prayer. He does. So if that's you, cry out to Him today. But you know what? Those of us who are believers walking and being sanctified, we need to be reminded that purity, again, is in the heart. We can be tempted to go back to that external righteousness trying to prove to everybody that I look good, but things inside are not going well. How do we stay pure in heart? Three points. How do I maintain a pure heart? First, confess your sins quickly. Do not harbor sins. David expresses this in Psalm 32. He says, When I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long, and God's hand was heavy on me. 1 John 1.9 gives you a great promise, Christian. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let lust linger. Don't let bitterness build up or the anger be shoved under the rug. Even the small sins, don't shove them under the rug, but confess quickly. Confess wholeheartedly to God. Confess regularly. That's point number one, confess sin quickly. Point number two, dwell on the word desperately. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, verse 10, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Here is the heart wash. Right here in your hands. The heart wash. You, you know you need to take your car to a car wash. This is the heart wash. You need this. Daily. Every day. You need a heart wash. 
And listen, we have no excuse. We don't have to hike up to the synagogue to hear God's Word taught. We don't have to, you know, wait until the, the language is translated into our language. No, no, we've got the heart wash in our pockets. On your phones, you have access to God's Word. We have no excuse. This thing sits on our nightstands. Open it up and allow your heart to be washed by the Word. We need it. We need it. Confess your sin quickly. Dwell on the heart. Dwell on the Word desperately. And point number three, guard your heart diligently. Guard it. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep it, guard it, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart, guard your conscience. Be careful at what you let in through your eyes, through your ears. Be careful, because it could be hardening that sin, that evil, that corruption, could be hardening your heart. The TV shows you watch, the music you listen to, the worldly influences that you have around you at work. Be careful. Make sure you're shoring up those gates around your heart. Make sure you're, you're punching in the holes with the Word of God so that nothing leaks in that corrupts it. Guard your heart. Confess your sin quickly. Dwell on the Word desperately. Guard your heart diligently. Do you want to see God? That's the same question I asked at the beginning. Do you want to see God? Do you want to ascend His holy hill and behold His face and stand in His presence in His kingdom? Be pure in heart. Pursue purity from the heart. Number seven, seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's good that peacemaking follows purity. And you know that they're listed together elsewhere in Scripture. Peacemaking is not separated from righteousness. Or purity from the heart. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James three seventeen. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Peace only works with righteousness from a pure heart. Peace without righteousness is a thin veneer. It's fake. It's temporary. It doesn't last long. It's like putting a band-aid on when you have internal bleeding. Peace without righteousness doesn't deal with the real problem, which is sin. A smile and a handshake doesn't solve the world's problems. The Peace Treaty of Versailles, classic example of this. I may be mispronouncing Versailles, but I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. It was the peace treaty signed at the end of World War I, July 28, 1919. It signified the end of that first world war. It was, had this unrealistic goal, and the terms of the treaty... Actually, uh, would, I think Wilson said, I, I hope something effective, I hope this treaty will end all future wars. Well, that went well. Just a couple years later, you have this guy named Adolf Hitler who actually pointed back to this treaty and the terms, the unjust terms in here, as his political platform for his campaign. Use this treaty to start another war. And to cultivate and, and really provoke the anger of Germans toward all outside countries. See, this peace treaty, this worldly peace treaty didn't last. No peace treaty between men without a righteous foundation will last. They need righteousness. They need to be forgiven of their sins. They need to be reconciled to God. Before we can realistically make peace or have peace with the fellow man. World peace is a vain endeavor without righteousness. 
The only way men can be right with each other is to be right with God, and that is right from the heart. And so the only peaceful solution is, get this, Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace, Ephesians 2 says, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Galatians 3 says, For in Jesus Christ you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. So who makes peace? Jesus. So think about this. What is the ultimate peacemaking activity for the Christian? What do you think it means to be a peacemaker? Share the gospel. Evangelize. Share the righteousness of Christ. Not in a way that puts other stumbling blocks and hindrances in front of people, but come with the ultimate stumbling block, which is Jesus. Don't make it difficult. The gospel is already difficult. Don't be a difficult person, kind of smug or arrogant and harsh. Let the gospel be the difficult part, but appeal to people with a good conscience and good motivation out of love. Please be reconciled to God. Believe in Jesus so that you can be saved. Represent your Father. Look at the peacemakers are called sons of God. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't come with a smile and a handshake. Jesus said, I came to divide brother against brother, son against father. Because he knew the gospel was going to be divisive. It's going to be a stumbling block for some. But by his life and his work, he made peace, didn't he? He gave us a way for us to be right with God and right with each other. He brought the Jew and the Gentile together, two different ethnicities that never got along. Both one in Christ. Bring the gospel, be an evangelist, be an ultimate peacemaker. Put no other stumbling block in your path, no other difficulty before the world. Don't argue with the world over things that don't matter. Give them no reason outside of Jesus Christ to take offense with you. Because Jesus, the gospel, is a rock of offense already. Some will receive Christ, and as a result, be at peace with God. You'll win more brothers and sisters, and others will reject it. And as a result... Beatitude number eight. The eighth beatitude. Blessed are the persecuted. See, peacemaking will lead to persecution, ironically. Blessed are you, sorry, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice, same promise as the first beatitude. Here are the capstones. Jesus is a great preacher. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just a note. If the kingdom is now, and righteousness reigns now with Christ on his throne and us reigning with him, why are we persecuted? Why do we wait for this satisfaction that Jesus talks about in verse 6? Why do we still wait to inherit the earth? Verse 5. It's a future promise. Why is it that we're still waiting to see God? Verse 8. Be careful when you decide to spiritualize the kingdom. Because what, present, what prevents you from spiritualizing these other promises? That are very tangible, real, literal, physical. But if you understand Jesus' words when he says theirs is the kingdom as a position of belonging to a future promise that you'll inherit, then this all makes sense. Of course, if we're meek now, we'll inherit the earth later. 
for pure in heart now, we'll see God later. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness here, we'll see righteousness established later. We will, if we're poor in spirit and if we're persecuted now, then we get the kingdom later. See, there's a, a future reward, a carrot held in front of us, if you will, that motivates us to endure suffering now. You'll gladly endure persecution now in this age because you'll reign and you'll receive the reward in the next. I preached this passage a couple months ago in our Doomsday Prepper series. I had three points, if you remember them. Persecution is expected. Persecution is embraced. And persecution is, right, or sorry, is Christ-centered. So let's go through them just briefly. Persecution is expected. It's one of the Beatitudes. It's the one that nobody wants to talk about. Oh, sure, we could be poor in spirit. Oh, sure, we could be meek. We could be humble, put others before ourselves. Oh, sure, we'll be peacemakers. That sounds nice and lovely. Persecuted, though? Let's save that for another sermon series. No, this should be expected in our life, just as much as these other attributes are expected. 1 John 3, 13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Take that to the bank. It'll clear. It's a promise. You know, the farmer is not surprised when he reaps a harvest. Because... He's been faithful to sow and to water, right? Now, the farmer's also not surprised when all these kind of variables try to attack his crop. He's not surprised when weeds pop up, when birds come down and try to pluck up the seeds, or, or there's diseases that attack his crop and try to destroy it. It's, it's all part of farming, isn't it? A faithful and a wise farmer, he expects it. He's not surprised. Maybe persecution surprises us because we're not farming. In other words, maybe there's no trial or attack in your life because you're not sowing seeds. To say it bluntly, maybe there's no persecution in your life because you're not a faithful Christian. Faithful Christians will expect this doesn't mean that you're beaten or thrown in jail. But you could be, as Jesus says, slandered against. You could have had an employee or a co-worker make a joke about you. You could have been reviled, defamed, your influence diminished because they know you're a Christian. That will happen somewhere, somehow. It will. It's a part of living the Christian life. But if it's not happening... Maybe you're not taking risks, or even more urgently, you're not living faithfully. You're not being a faithful witness. We all ought to be faithful witnesses. And we know that being a faithful witness for Jesus Christ, the glory and the joy is that sometimes we win some. Most of the time, we lose. And we lose for Christ. For Christ. The kingdom citizen expects it. It's a beatitude. It describes us. But it's not only that we expect it, we embrace it with joy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Celebrate. Cheers. You're persecuted. Your reward in heaven is great. Also, look at you're in good company. You're surrounded by the prophets who were persecuted before you. Embrace persecution. Not as a necessary curse, but embrace it as a blessed assurance that you're not of this world, but you're looking forward to the next. That your citizenship is not here, but it's there in the kingdom. Even though this world hates you, they hate you because they hated your king who walked before you. And you're walking in his footsteps. That should be a great assurance. A blessed assurance. Something that you can even, in the midst of persecution, rejoice and be glad. Because you know your reward from the king is going to be great in heaven later. He says, don't worry though 
It won't last forever. He's coming back for retribution. And He's going to receive you for your reward. So persecution ought to be embraced. Thirdly, persecution is Christ-centered. This is final point. Persecution is Christ-centered. Make sure that you, per- you are persecuted for His name's sake, for righteousness' sake, verse 10. On His account, verse 11. Make sure it's for Him and not for something else. You're not going out to look for a fight without being under the banner of Jesus Christ. We're not a people that, um, what do you call it? You know, stand out on the corner with a sign and say, we're rebelling against the government for this reason, right? That's not, that's not our cause. Our cause is Christ. Our cause is Christ, His name's sake. 1 Peter 4 says this, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in the name of Christ. Don't suffer foolishly. Don't get fired for laziness and call it persecution. Don't get in a fight at a food court and call it persecution. Because your food didn't come out on time, or the person cut you in line. That's not persecution. Make it about Jesus, not about you, not about your favorite politician, not about defending your reputation, not even about defending your rights. It's defending Christ, His name, for righteousness' sake. Make sure it's about Him. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20. The end of your Bibles, Revelation 20. Here's a vision of the kingdom. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Let me ask you, Those who manifest that which the Beatitudes describe, they enter the kingdom. But what Beatitude do you see prominent there for those who inherit the kingdom? The persecuted. The persecuted. Those are the ones that we see prominently there receiving the kingdom and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Blessed are they. Amen? Blessed are the ones who suffer for Christ's name and His sake. You can be sure, Christian, that if you're persecuted in this life now for the name of Christ, for the sake of His righteousness, yours is the kingdom of heaven. See, the Beatitudes describe the kingdom citizen now awaiting a future reward. They're humble. They're sober. They're meek. They're righteousness craving. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They are peacemaking and they are persecuted. Do these attitudes describe your life? Do you want and desire their future reward? The Beatitudes teach us Christians, kingdom citizens, a lot. Areas that we can grow and be strengthened in. But what do the Beatitudes teach the non-citizen, the non-Christian? A lot. Firstly, the door to the kingdom is low. Only those who crawl on their hands and their knees make it in. We're all spiritual beggars. We have nothing to offer God except our our sin. Secondly, sin and death are serious matters that should result in godly mourning. 
Thirdly, the kingdom is not taken by a self-righteous, success-driven attitude. It's received in meekness, following the selfless example of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death for our sins. Fourthly, the righteousness we need is not from ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. It's found in the only man who lived the righteous life, Jesus Christ. Fifth, the ultimate display of mercy is forgiveness. God forgives our sins in an incredible act of mercy on the cross. Sixth, you need a clean heart to see God. No amount of external washing can do this, but like David prayed, you need to... You need God to create in you a clean heart. And He does that through your trust in the precious and pure blood of Jesus Christ. Seven, the only way to be at peace with God and with your fellow man is through Jesus Christ. He makes right a relationship with God and He makes us one with each other when we believe in Him. Finally, Christianity in this world is not a name it and claim it faith. It will not result in an externally or temporarily prosperous life all the time. It will give you everything you could ever want, though. Not in this life, but in the life to come. In this life, though, expect to be slandered, reviled, fired, hated, rejected by family, opposed by friends. Want to sign up? But listen, the promises are sure, and the reward in heaven is great. Your place in the kingdom is secure. If you know God and you're covered in His righteousness, look forward and see the blessing of being a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What are you waiting for? If that promise is sure, what are you waiting for? Repent of your sins and trust the King today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, more great reminders of who we are as kingdom citizens. I pray that you would help us, enable us, strengthen us to live these things out in our lives. God, help us to be merciful as just a a response of gratitude and thankfulness for the mercy you've shown us. Help us to be pure in heart so that we would see you. There would be no sin harbored in our life, but we would confess it quickly, purge our lives daily, through the word. God, I ask that you'd help us to be peacemakers, ultimate peacemakers, by sharing the gospel of peace, Jesus Christ, the way to be reconciled to God and to be right with each other. And God, I pray that through persecution, as we expect it and as we embrace it, that we would remember your promises, that even though we suffer in this life, Lord God, we reign and we rule with you in the kingdom and the next life. Help us to look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen.